Hi, welcome to Masala History. My name is Deepthi and today we have a very special guest with us, Maggie Schuster. Hi. Hi Maggie. And uh Maggie Schuster is actually a PhD student at uh my university and she works on uh Mughal patronage. Yes, female patronage. Yes, female patronage yes. in Mughal India and she is uh going to be here as our expert. talking about Noor Jahan the one and only empress from Mughal India so we're going to have a really great discussion about this uh but before we go there i just wanted to quickly um promote our little podcast it's uh, masala history um you can hear us on itunes you can also find us on www.masalahistory.com uh we are also available on blubbery which is our podcasting host and uh we have a ton of information uh like show notes and related images on our website so do go check us out and if you like us give us a thumbs up on our website or we have a facebook page we are also on twitter as at masala history and on instagram as at masala underscore history so catch us over there maggie we are going to start a new semester right now and uh, what are you excited i'm very excited uh, i think the classes i signed up for this semester are really interesting and going mm-hmm. to be very helpful when i eventually start writing my dissertation. Yeah. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Oh yeah, no, no. You you have time. You should enjoy taking those courses. I wish I was taking courses. It's it's a lot of reading, but it's also a lot of fun because you get to taste like different kinds of things. Yes. Uh which is hard to do once you start writing your dissertation. Right. But what made you sort of pick Mughal women's patronage as your topic? Um I think Mughal history is was really interesting to me because I knew I wanted to work with the history of women mm-hmm. and this was one area where I was able to find patronage done by women oh, right, and yes. accredited to women. So I think that was really interesting to me. Um and then my undergraduate professors were very influential to yes, my current of path. They were. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Um <laughs> so I took one class on Islamic art and really fell in love with the Mughals I so know. it's they kind of you know they're like those that dysfunctional family <laughs> that you really can't get rid of yes you know once you fall in love with them like they stay with you <laughs> it's it's true mm-hmm. they just sort of bring you in yeah. um just just a word um Maggie's undergraduate professors were the famous Ashers. Yes. So, <laughs> of course, if you're a student of, like, you know, Catherine Asher. Yes. You know, you, 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 you are already in sort of scholarly heaven. Yes. Right? To name drop Catherine yes, Asher. Yes. yes. I'm name dropping Catherine Asher into this podcast. Yes. But... <laughs> Um, but really no like you know um the ashes have probably been the one of the most prominent uh, the mo- most prominent couple um the historians who really contributed so much to our understanding of m- not just mughal history but like south asian history at large so mm-hmm. um it's truly like you know great to actually have them as your the foundational scholars that you look up to yes so i'm really jealous about that yeah, <laughs> yeah working with catherine on my undergraduate thesis was yeah. really wonderful and yeah. i i'm really glad i got to be able to do yeah. that so yay yay for the new <laughs> semester um i on the other hand i'm writing so i don't have a semester anymore i guess i'm just just writing right. writing writing but i'm teaching cl- a class at uic so i'm very excited about that um we are still going to record podcasts so keep listening to us now today we're going to talk about Empress Noor Jahan. Mm-hmm. And uh we're going to talk about the myth of Noor Jahan and um a lot of the information that generally in South Asia that circulates about Noor Jahan is as the wife of Jahangir who really you know took over the reins in not and she's not discussed always in a positive manner. Right. Um so here we're going to sort of uh dissect that understanding of Noor Jahan and really try to see for ourselves 
um, who she was yes. and what she stood for. Right. As well as you can from someone who right. doesn't write anything about herself, who, right. who has no biography, where we're just getting information secondhand from mm-hmm. the, the men in her life, really. Right. So. Yeah. So... Do you want to go ahead and introduce her, Maggie? Yes. So, a uh, general history of Nur Jahan. She was born as Mirunisa to Miz, uh, Mirza Giasbeg and Asmat. They were fleeing uh, Safavid Iran after the death of the Shah, Shah Tamps. Um, and during their immigration to, to India, uh, she was born on a road outside of Kandahar um, in 1577. Uh, she had two elder brothers, Muhammad Shah and Asif Khan, uh, and her brothers, along with her father, all worked for Akbar and eventually Jahangir. Jahangir as well, yes. Yes, uh, they were able to get pretty high in the ranks, yeah. especially... Um, Gaius, Gaius. Gaius, Gaius Beg, yeah. Yes. Um, so Gaius Beg uh, is probably better known, at least in India, um, as Itmadudala, right. uh, the title that was given to him by um, Jahangir. Yes. Um, or uh, I think it might have been Akbar who gave him the title. Um, I'm not quite sure now. But uh, we'll check that information and put it on our <laughs> website. But, but Itmadudala's tomb... Um, in Agra mm-hmm. is, um, I forgot to tell you this, I just went to Agra, like the last time I was in India, mm-hmm. for the first time ever. And I saw the Taj Mahal, but what I went f- to see was actually Madhudala's tomb. The baby Taj. The baby Taj maybe. or the jewel box, as yes. it is called. But I swear, I know this is my personal opinion, but mm-hmm. like, it is so much more beautiful than Taj. Like, it is outstanding. The Pietra Dura on it is to die for i mean there's so much more um color variations and sort of the you know how jahangir loves flowers yes um and nature yes <laughs> if you look at that tomb you know it was made in jahangir's reign and not shah jahan's right because shah jahan's taj mahal is very restrained and you know it's it's full it's more marble than colors yes and this one is like colors with marble in it. You know, it's almost like that. Right. So it's, I love it. So, um, yeah. And it, it really, I feel like Nur Jahan patronized this too. Yes. And I feel like she was really getting at this idea of the paradisial state, mm-hmm. the garden within this architecture, yes. which I think uh, is a great place for her parents. You could tell she put a lot of yeah. feeling into it, I think. And I know you mentioned this before when we were doing our pre-recording discussion about how people often, uh, even scholars, refer to it as Jahangir's um, patronage yes. by which that tomb was built. Mm-hmm. Where And Noor Jahan's name is not usually mentioned by scholars. Right. Um, yeah, which I found fascinating when you mentioned that. Yeah. I think that is that can be a problem with our just as historians' personal biases, mm-hmm. that we think, the, oh, the king must have made this, the emperor right. must have made this if it's during his reign. And yeah. and I think with the Mughals, there is a lot of times that is disproven. Um, Jahangir didn't build any of the mosques that were built during his right, reign. Yeah. They were all done by either his mother or Nur Jahan right, yeah. for the most part. So yeah. um, I think there's a lot of... Really yeah. cool patronage done by women at the time. Yeah, no, that's uh, we we get to that in a little bit in our uh, in our podcast. Uh, but for now, um, to continue with uh, yes. Nur Jahan's introduction, yes. So she um, is uh, gets married to what, Sheriff Afghan. Yeah, yes. Sheriff Khan, and Sheriff he was, Khan. He was called Ali Kuli Kuli Beg. Yes. Um, and not Sherav Khan. Sherav Khan is the title that was given to him by Jahangir. Right. Tiger Slayer, yes. Yes, Tiger Slayer. Yes. Because at, in, in, a, in Kabul, he was battled a tiger and <laughs> killed the tiger. And so then Jahangir yes. gave him the title um, of Sherav Khan. Anyway, they get married. Mm-hmm. Have one child, mm-hmm. Ladley, who will come into the story a little bit later. Yes, the one that ruins it all. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, and so they are married 12 years until uh, Sheriff Khan gets involved in some of these familial mm-hmm. squabbles yeah. between Akbar and Jahangir yeah. and sort of ends up on the wrong side. Yeah. And that is his downfall. Um, and after his death, uh, Nur Jahan mourns for 40 days in her her friend's home yeah in in uh, in the person who was actually i think uh, they they are actually in bengal when this happens mm-hmm. and um ali kuli beg or sherav khan he's been transferred to bengal to work there and um he gets into a fight and um gets uh, gets killed because he actually kills uh jahangir's best friend yes and Kutubdin Khan Khoka. <laughs> yes. I finally got that name right. <laughs> so um, he kills Kutubdin Khan Khoka, and then Khoka's um, officials kill him. And then whoever is left was this man named Malik, who actually takes uh, Mehrunisa, then Mehrunisa, and her daughter in, and they mourn in, in his house for 40 days. Yes. And then she travels to. The harem, where she is... In Agra. Yes, tor- taken under the wing of Jahangir's stepmother? Yes, yes stepmother, stepmother. Rukaya Begum. Yes. And um, and from then on, like, you know, there is there is a lapse. We don't know what happens to um, Nur Jahan at the harem. Mm-hmm. Um, you just know that at some point, um, by in 1611, yes. she gets married to Jahangir mm-hmm. and becomes his 20th and last wife. Yes. And... She uh, sort of becomes co-sovereign with him until his death mm-hmm. in 1627. Yeah. Uh, doing some really cool stuff. She's yeah, yeah the, <laughs> printing coins in her name uh-huh. and um, being portrayed as as an individual in a portrait. Right. An individual loading a gun. Yes. Which is a really... I found that really fascinating too. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't seen, I have seen that image before, but I haven't really paid it attention. Right. Until I started preparing for this podcast. Right. <laughs> I really like the, um, she has the portrait where she's painted holding a portrait of Jahan oh, yes, Gear. That one, yes. In sort of the similar style of Jahan Gear holding Akbar after Akbar's death. Yes. Aligning herself with this yeah. lineage of kings, which yeah. is a really cool art thing to do in yeah. my opinion no the the, the sort of legitimizing uh, just for the re, uh, listeners who haven't um, spent a lot of time looking at Mughal miniatures a lot of the portraits of these Mughal emperors always had something to do with legitimizing their power mm-hmm. in, in some aspect yes. so especially this particular set where Jahangir holds Akbar's portrait and then Noor Jahan who holds Jahangir's portrait it just direct sort of uh, establishing your sovereign right as the ruler in way by you know sort of linking yourself to whoever yes. was your counterpart right. or who came your predecessor yes. so holding your lineage yes. in the portrait like yes. physically holding yeah. that familial tie to power yeah. to kingship um i found as i read about no jahan i kind of um started thinking a lot about um you know, her as a woman in 17th century India mm-hmm. in an Islamic world. Yes. Where um, Akbar, for all his generosity and, you know, um, religious uh, liber- liberalism, um, had actually um, was the one to initiate Mughal women to be under close, be behind closed doors and wear a veil. Yes. And uh, and so the harem as a system was really instituted under Akbar. Mm-hmm. And so um, to then from there uh, become uh, become the queen empress, essentially. Yeah. Um, and this was not a person who was empress in name alone. Mm-hmm. Jahangir had 19 other wives. Um, none of them rose to that power. It was just this particular woman who somehow managed to have coins minted in her name. Yes. And sat uh at the Jaroka. Yes, sat yeah. Jaroka. Um another really visible thing to do. Yeah. Uh, uh for a time where they're still sort of being yeah. the veiled ones as Akbar. Yeah, and, and them, also women. It's, it's kind of I kind of imagine, you know, sitting in those Mughal palaces 
at the Jaroka. Now you can't actually, you can actually go to the Jaroka now as a woman, right? Mm. But, it, uh, but to see that view and to think about that in 17th century and say the entire hall would be filled with men. Yes. You know, learned Khasis, you know, who, you know, are there as clerics, you know, very stringent. There are these nobles who are all well armed. There are their retainers and supporters and soldiers. And to be the sole woman in that hall, in that milieu, right. to have the power to command to that group, that's something extraordinary, even for our time today. Like, you know, yeah. it, it's still extraordinary. So to think of her doing it in the 17th century is like, you know, pretty remarkable um, right. to, to just imagine. Right. Cause I can think of myself being in a room, being the only woman in a room that, yeah. that's happened before. <laughs> I can't imagine then also being the, the sovereign of that room, the, yeah. the sole leader of that yeah. room yeah. and uh, commanding. It, 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 yes. And in a climate where you're not a, bre- they don't want you there. Right. You know, they don't, yeah. I mean, they don't want a woman there. So in many ways, like, you know, Jahangir's close confidant, Mahabad Khan, actually eventually goes and tells Jahangir, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, why are you essentially telling him, why are you letting a woman rule? Right. Um, And so uh, they're just suffering her because, you know, Jahangir is okay with it. Right. Um, Which is interesting as well. Yeah. So... um, I wanted to, so we, we read a couple of different books for the podcast and uh, one of them was Ruby Lal's Noor Jahan and the other one was um, Elizabeth Finley. Ellison Banks and Finley. Ellison Banks Finley, sorry. Um, Ellison Banks Finley's uh, Noor Jahan and um, we found it very interesting to compare those two books because um, they kind of go into uh, in-depth and specifics about Noor Jahan's life in very different ways. Yes. And one of the things that uh, came out of it was to talk about how do you think about Noor Jahan when we're talking about, like, you know, is Noor Jahan a feminist? Right. You know? How do you put someone who is living outside of this um, way of communicating? Like, I don't feel like Noor Jahan would have understood this box that people are trying to put her in. So I don't see how it's fair to really hold her up to contemporary feminist standards. Right. But in, in both of these books, we have that. And I think, um, Ruby, Ruby laws. Yes. Uh, Ruby law was definitely trying to critically think about this and push against, um, sort of these stereotypes that had been impacting mm-hmm. narratives on Nur Jahan. And yet I still find her, you know, talking about Nur Jahan as if she was fighting, fighting the patriarchy right? in the same sense as a, a contemporary woman would be. Yeah. And I think that you have to be a little careful with something like that. Yeah. I mean, we uh, essentially like, you know, so, Uh, I know that we talked about this, like, what would a feminist history of Mughal India look like, right? It's it's very difficult to imagine a woman-centric narrative for Mughal world because it was not a world which, which, you know, allowed women to have a certain narrative for themselves. Right. Or at least not all women. Mm -hmm. Some women did. And Noor Jahan B is one of them. Yes. Um... And so it's interesting to sort of think about her. But like, I think the more productive um, enterprise would be to think of Noor Jahan on her own, you know, with no feminist tag, but just yes. to think of her as a woman who was like, you know, doing the best for herself. Yes. And I do think I I, I was noticing as I was reading that um, her life is really defined by the actions of the men surrounding her. Yeah. Her father, you know, we get a huge backstory on her father's life, on her yes. husband, on Jahan Gir, mm-hmm. on Shah Jahan. Yeah. And so, I-, I mean, I think that's probably necessary because that's what we have left over now, mm-hmm. that that's what we have. We have these biographies and political documents. Yeah. And so I don't know how you could separate her from you, the men in her and, life. and you shouldn't like you know mm-hmm. you, you, i mean th- they are the context that makes makes sense when you think about her life right, right? for example like um the 
what happens is though that you know when you think about it from the men's perspective with especially men writing those biographies then you get like you know the thomas roe version or the william finch version or the alexander doe version where like it's like oh she was this you know schemer who yes. actually schemed her way into an opium addicted jahangir yes. and then she took the reign and then she created this the splinter between the father and the son for yes. her gain and then this evil person's machinations you know you know right. the the narrative of the evil wench yes well it's these it's it's european travelers coming over and and seeing this happening and thinking i don't it, it's their own biases coming in they don't understand truly how the empire works i don't yeah. think um and then uh, i don't know they're just writing based on a different world and so it it gets very confused yeah and so the the narrative about like this wench noor jahan woman yes. is very strong it's it's something that you know i think um even like in contemporary south asia like it's at the bottom like even if it's not the one that you don't talk about her mm-hmm. in that sense um it it sort of um is the underpinning underpinning for a lot of our understanding of the jahangir no jahan relationship that jahangir was addicted yeah. and he was not a great king yes um and which is not true no. it is uh, in our last podcast we kind of talked about <laughs> the fact that he was actually a very able administrator right um uh he just thought that noor jahan should rule with him the uh, it, it, that doesn't make him a bad administrator yes right but like the narrative always is because he was so drunk you know yes. this woman with her charms like you know yeah. was able to like you know wrap her around his her little finger and make him dance to her tunes right you know it's such a patriarchal understanding of 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 the situation yes whereas there's no evidence for it right really. i th- i think it was peter mundy says that she would purposefully get him drunk and then he will be <laughs> unable to say no to her so yeah. to wait until he's intoxicated and then ask diplomatic questions which yeah, is just I've, i feel like i've seen a movie like that somewhere <laughs> you know <laughs> probably <laughs> like uh, moon doing all that yes um i think that was the really great part about this law book is that right. it i she was very specific to move away from that idea yeah. that nurjahan was was tricking him or getting this power because of his disinterest in ruling when he still did rule he yeah. still had an interest in ruling yeah. um yeah so maybe we should unpack that a little bit so what mm-hmm. really happened in 1611 um she was living at the harem yes she was actually um uh, lal says she was mentored by jahangir's stepmothers mm-hmm. and mother herself mm-hmm. um at the harem um but she lived there for four years uh finley actually says she was a lady in waiting to rukaya begum uh, right. jahangir's stepmother and probably the most powerful of all akbar's wives yes uh, and um but we know that in 1611 something happens they get married mm-hmm. and um then we don't really hear i mean in jahangir now in his autobiography he doesn't mention her or the marriage in 1611 he doesn't mention most of his other marriages he mentions man bhai um uh, the wife uh who gave him the son khusro mm-hmm. uh, and how she died yes but kind of says that she's mad right uh, like you know saying oh she 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 died because she committed suicide mm. because mm-hmm. of khusro and all that happened with khusro uh, and him sort of revolting against me um so she committed suicide but then her brothers and other people in her family are also mad so you know <laughs> duh. like like that's his explanation for that but he doesn't really mention any of his wives mm-hmm. and particularly noor jahan is not mentioned anywhere until 16 14 yes. yeah and so uh, 3 years after their marriage mm-hmm. um and then suddenly she's on the rise yes and she just moves um she quickly becomes his partner they travel together they hunt together she's supposed to be an expert hunter yeah. or markswoman who can kill tigers four tigers with six shots from an elephant just from an elephant, <laughs> from an elephant <laughs> on a howdah yeah uh, which apparently happened and because jahangir writes about it in mm-hmm. in real time very impressed with her she is 
uh, this person, as you said, she's making friends with Prince Kuram, the future Shah Jahan. Yes. They're having this bond where they both know their purpose and, mm-hmm. in, and their place in, in the Mughal world. And, but none of this actually says scheming wench anywhere. No. It doesn't. No. There is, there's no adequate proof for that. Right. Uh, what we do have proof for is that she did share power with Emperor Jahangir. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is uh, the myth about her so prevalent? Um, I think part of that has to come from how the relationship between her and Shah Jahan crumbles at the end. Absolutely. I think that is part of the myth building that happens around her is is after Shah Jahan takes over and he's angry mm-hmm. the the uh he's trying to erase some of the things that she's done from the record. So I think to get into that the first thing to talk about is how this relationship between them changed. Yes. Um so because as you said they started out um doing their courtly duties and and being very happy with each other. Mm-hmm. They give each other extravagant gifts, mm-hmm. which of, of course in the court is a sign of a good relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when he returns from a battle, she greets him first instead of his birth mother. Yes. Or possibly instead of his birth mother entirely. Like yeah. There's no record. Of the his... birth mother anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. And um, they're spending time together and they have a very strong relationship um and where this is sort of starts to come apart i think is with nur jahan's motherly instinct to protect her mm-hmm. daughter and give her a, a, i think what she hopes will be a very very fruitful relationship yeah um and just to remind this is largely the daughter yes. she has had with sher afghan yes um who was murdered for murdering Jahangir's best friend. Right. <laughs> because her and Jahangir have no children together. Yes, no children, yes. She just she brings in Ladli from her previous marriage. Um and of course she doesn't want Ladli to marry Shah Jahan because he is deeply in love. Madly in love. With Mumtaz Mahal. Yes. The woman for whom Taj Mahal was built. Yes, clearly madly in love with her. There's no way Ladli's getting another Taj Mahal that's not happening. No, and yes, Nur Jahan knows this. If she marries her her only daughter to the the son that will, is clearly the heir to the throne, yeah. she's she's going to be a silent background wife. Yeah. She's not going to get One any power. Harem wives. So she, yes. She there. probably won't have any children with him. Yeah. And or maybe she will. I think know? the point that you, you she could have. The point that Law made, I think, was that at the time, uh, maybe eight of nine children had been born to. Yes, and it, they were all Mumtus Mahal. Exactly. Kids. And she dies in childbirth with a 14th child, a 13th or 14th child. Shah Jahan clearly had a preference. <laughs> One, yes, and only one of his wives. So yeah. clearly, the other wives were not getting their chance to Actually. bear children. <laughs> so, it, it instead she marries Ladli to uh, Sharar. Shahriar, yeah, Shahriar. That's a hard name. Though. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and as a result, she starts to push for him to yeah. take over. Yes, which of course, unsurprisingly. Shahjan is like, dude, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. I scratch. Beep. But like, that's what happened. She was like, you were my friend. Yes. I think there's a clear feeling of betrayal here. Yeah. No, I and I support Shah Jahan here. Yes. Like, one you know, of the few times I support Shah Jahan. <laughs> like, you know, he was really like, you know, legitimately like, what just happened? Yeah. I mean, this woman had taken over the role of mother in his yeah. life. And then suddenly... She's like, uh, I am going to support someone else. You can't be king yeah. because you love your wife and not my daughter. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I know the motherly instinct sort of took over. And I think that was a bad decision. I think so too. It was like a horrible decision. Yes. I, I, in, I always wish that they could have worked things out. <laughs> because I think Lal made a, a, I mean, it was, it was imaginary, but this idea that, Jahangir 
had hoped that his his favorite son Shah Jahan and his favorite <laughs> wife Nur Jahan could have ruled the empire together. Yeah. And this sort of crashes apart. And I also like Jahan Gear wish that they could have ruled together. <laughs> yeah. No, it would have been it would have been actually a great partnership because I you know so she too. seems by all measures, um, uh, I, I think early on in the book, I think in Lal's book, she kind of mentions that she probably uh, learned about administration and policies and the Mughal sort of system from her first husband, who was in the in in the Mughal provincial world, right? And so, and in Bengal, where it was like a frontier at that time for yes. the Mughal world, and therefore, like you know, she would probably have had more of a say in how the how their business was conducted, right? Or there were not enough people to talk to, so she, you know, Sherav Khan probably <laughs> talked to her more right. about like you know the daily goings and comings of running an empire in the prop in the province, right? And and she so she was actually. Probably very well versed. Her father was a minister. Yes. The minister mm-hmm. in Jahangir's time. Her brother actually becomes one as well. Um, and so she probably had the acumen and the experience to do this. Yes. And um, she was very capable, as you can see in the last years of uh, Jahangir's reign. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not unheard of in these empires for the the mothers yes. to be is- highly regarded advisors. Yes. Both Akbar, Akbar was, uh, uh, loved, uh, the guidance of his great aunt Gulbadan, as well as his mother and his foster mother, who mm-hmm. were very important to him. His mother was Mariam and his wife was also Mariam. So there were two Mariams. <laughs> they yes. gets me very confused. <laughs> Jahangir's mother was Mariam. Mariam Bukayabi, or Harka. Harka. <laughs> and, uh, the, and she was also very important, as was Rukaya Begum, Jahangir's stepmother, mm-hmm. who were the ones who actually went to counsel Khusro when he revolted against his father. Yes. And so there is this history of... Um, and we need to probably talk about the harem a little bit too, because, you know, the harem has got like you know a bad rap again like an orientalist bad rap yes this idea that it's like a tantric wild like like orgy films like you know like (laughs) dancing you know women like you know writhing in like you know yes it's a very sort of uh, you know that exotic you know defiled east Yes. sort of idea of the harem mm-hmm. and I particularly liked how the harem was being described in Lal's book. Yes, it made it feel like a city of women. Yeah. Which it, I think which is more it realistic. Which probably was. Like, um, especially when she talks about the Agra fort mm-hmm. where the women's quarters, the women's multi-tiered harem is, which you can see actually um, and some of it sounded so uh, so palpable and, you know, plausible as well. Where um, she presents it as like a space where there were these women who were very powerful in their own accounts, mm-hmm. uh, where the sons, the princes uh, who would become future kings would grow up and some would stay until they were teenagers. Right. So essentially men. Yes. So until they are about 15, they're living there. Shah Jahan lived there I think till she was 16 or 17 mm-hmm. at the harem. So it was not like a woman only domain. It was a princely domain as well. And these women were responsible in part for, on the whole, for bringing up the princess as well. Yes. And so it was really a productive creative space mm-hmm. run by women mm-hmm. and where women sort of were the miniature rulers yes. of that that sort of space. Yeah. And highly influential outside of the space also because yes. of their connection to these princes, which I, I think is why it's so frustrating when, especially in the West, we think of harem and also the... Mughal empires and and Asia as a whole in this very orientalizing, fetishizing way yeah. um, when it was or, – or even that we think of these as places where women are suffering all yeah. the time when, yeah. when really these royal women have – and of course royal women being not all women, yeah. <laughs> a, a small percentage of course, um, but they have at least as much power as – women at the time in the West, if not more, in this harem. Because yeah. they're they have this influence. Yeah, I mean also like when this this actually happens to me all the time, like, you know, I would um think about the harem and then I would be like, they're still secluded. So, mm-hmm. you know, how can you say they have still freedom? But like 
again, that's like a 21st century uh, mentality, right? right? Like, you know, th- these women didn't think that way. No. Their world didn't act that way. So, you know, it is, it is unfair for me to think about a 21st century perspective and try to think of the Mughal women as being less free yes. because they lived within a walled compound. Mm-hmm. Which with with certain restrictions, right? Right. So that's um, that's one. But the other thing is, like you know, in the case of Noor Jahan, even before she becomes queen, while she's still at the harem, she starts uh, helping orphan girls get married. Yes. Right. And so she's generally well known as being a very generous woman, mm-hmm. a very kind benefactor who will find a way, use her own money to get these poor girls married off so that they can have a life. She seems to have had some sort of outside connection in the form of servants or uh, like traders who came in to uh, sell products, at the sell, sell their wares in the harem. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of outside connections, as you can see from Noor Jahan's own a sort of known biography. Right. Um, and so the even this idea of the walled compound it's, itself is a little misleading. Yeah. Because they did have one of the walls of the harem face the street so mm. that people can bring in wares and sell things and women could come in through, the women servants could, you know, go out into the markets or come in into the buildings. And so it was not really a walled off compound. It was just out of bounds for men to come in. Yeah. Um, Well, and they're not cut off either because I think at the beginning of this book, she talks about how uh, Nur Jahan was brought to the harem by her mother, Asmat. Yes. Even though they didn't live in the harem. They They were high enough ranking that they could come in and visit yeah. and and bring in the their outside world. Um, so there, there's still these connections, yeah, to outside of the harem. It's it's. I think sometimes it's made to seem like a prison when it it, it doesn't really function that way. No, it just seems like it was a different sort of living. It was a different kind of spatial division. Yes, and a different kind of living mm-hmm. than we are accustomed to. Yes. Um, and so it has to be seen that way, I guess. Mm-hmm. So the harem itself being opened up in a way in Ruby Lal's book was like really refreshing to read. Mm-hmm. And I found that like one of the most productive things about uh, preparing for this podcast because, yeah. you know, it was really put together so well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, uh, but we're talking about uh, Nur Jahan's mom, Asmith. Yes. And we quite didn't uh, talk about the fact that probably Nur Jahan was treated so well was because, I mean, A, if there was a soldier who was slain in the Mughal emperor's army, then the Mughal emperor would take care of the slain soldier's family. That was a thing mm-hmm. that they did, all this. In this case, because she was Ghiyas Beg's and Asmat's daughter, mm-hmm. she was treated with extra respect right. and kindness. Yes. Which is why she was placed with Rukaya Begum mm-hmm. at the harem. And so um, one thing that, you know, again, like, you know, this myth of Noor Jahan about, you know, how she's a wen, she just came so away in. Her family is already sort of the first family in the Mughal world right. from outside the, the outside the main royals. Mm-hmm. Like Giyas Beg is the, uh, big, the minister, like his son is there. His other son tries to... Um, um, support Khusro um, and then gets m- killed by Jahangir for that. But like the uh, the two other sons that uh, Giyas Beg has, Nur Jahan's brothers, are also working in the administration. Um, I think Findlay kind of points it out that before the marriage mm-hmm. um, of Nur Jahan and Jahangir, the Nur Jahan's family, her father and brothers together, controlled 2% of the entire Mansab lands. Mm-hmm. under Mughal Empire. Right. 2%. Just one family. <laughs> just three people. Right. Right. And after her marriage to Jahangir, it becomes 8%. And really because Noor Jahan gets her own property, mm-hmm. a large part of the provinces, you know, she gets as yes. her son. So they're already a rich, very well-established, very powerful dynasty in itself mm-hmm. so it's not that she had to scheme her way in she was already no. there 
her mother was in the house, her father was in the house, her brothers were in the house, you know, right. either uh, getting promotions or getting killed. Mm-hmm. But like they were all in the Mughal realm inside right. the Agra fort. And so to think of her scheming her way in doesn't make any sense at all. Well, I think that points to some of these travelers misunderstanding what's going on because I believe it's Peter Mundi in his journals writes that she is a wife of low birth who has snuck yeah. her way into the yeah. palace, Yeah, which clearly she wasn't. Yeah. And uh, perhaps it's just coming from uh, when your only sovereigns in Europe have to have this lineage yeah. of kingship only. I also wonder if it's because of Henry VIII. Mm. You know, I know oh. there's no connection, but like <laughs> this is entirely my own, like, you know, uh, light bulb moment. <laughs> it's just Henry VIII with all that Anne Boleyn, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mess. Yeah. You know, it's if mess. it's... It, it, that is that is the immediate sort of like, you know, the controversy or like, you know, all the other sort of British monarchs have been more tame com- compared to Henry VIII, right? Yes. But like, you know, I wonder if like, you know, this, the scheming Bolin woman is a very uh, popular trope mm-hmm. um, as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I feel like they, they anglicized the Mughal world a little bit to, you know, put Noor Jahan into that sort of cubby. Right. Um, because that story they would have been used to. Yes. A woman just being an empress because the emperor thought she was capable was like a hard sell for them. Yes. Um, I wanted to also go back and say, it, uh, just just to note that it was not only the travelers, but like, you know, Bukhari, one of the uh, chroniclers of mm-hmm. their time, of the contemporary to Jahangir, yes. says she actually is the reason for the fitna. Yes. He uses the word fitna, fitna uh, being uh, the it's it's chaos or civil war. Uh, it was first used um, in association with the uh, fight that um, happened against the fourth caliph by uh, this woman Aisha supporting the first caliph. Mm-hmm. And so it was said that she created a civil war in Islam, mm-hmm. the first one. Yes. And so um, Nur Jahan is being equated to that person who actually created a civil war. Yes. And in that sense, it's right that she did. She did a little bit, yes. <laughs> oh, you, say, you, you don't want to say that. Oh, you know? No, I do. You're right. She, she, <laughs> I don't want to put her as the sole cause of this, but she did. She did. She did. Her moves with Shah Jahan were, were not well planned. No. And... Um, what happens is um, that Noor Jahan um, decides to marry her daughter Ladli to Shahriyad, who is not really, he's the fourth prince, you know, nobody really thinks he's going to do anything much. I uh, mean, but what were her choices, really? Yeah, he, she tried to apparently get her married to Khusro, who was but half she, blind, but then already walled in and living with his first wife, who wouldn't leave him even in prison. <laughs> she just decided to rot with him in prison, even though Jahangir says, no, come live in the harem, you'll right. be fine. She's like, no, I'll stay with my husband. Now, what is he supposed to do? He's blind. And he's like, no, no, the wife, I will leave and I'll marry your daughter. Like, No. He was not going to. Shah Jahan's already in love. The third son is a, an alcoholic, yes? I don't yeah, I think he dies. Name. He dies. Yeah. I think he dies in Deccan mm-hmm. um, right before. Yes. Um, and he will, he also dies when he's with Shah Jahan. And then Khusro right. is taken to Deccan and then Khusro dies as well. Yeah. So I, I wonder if Shah Jahan had something. It's a little, yeah. it's a little suspect around yeah, Shah Jahan. Yeah. I mean, the brothers go with Shah Jahan and then... <laughs> Never come back. Yeah. <laughs> so... And so yeah, so but Chahriyar was her only option, and he was young, and so you know they get married. Uh, the that marries. really didn't work out for her. No, with the not only does he not become king, doesn't he also get like leprosy or something yeah, horrible? He, he gets like some horrible disease, He's, like falling apart. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was that was a terrible, terrible thing. To, thing it was a bad decision, but like. Mm-hmm. We should probably tell them what happens. Like, so she, she marries her daughter Ladli to Shahriyar and then starts campaigning for Shahriyar to become king instead of Shah Jahan. Mm-hmm. Shah Jahan is fighting in Deccan and then he gets really mad at what's going on. Now, Mumtaz Mahal, Shah Jahan's favorite wife for whom he made the Taj Mahal, is actually Nur Jahan's niece. Yes. Nur Jahan's brother, Asaf Khan's mm-hmm. daughter. Yes. 
and so her brother is never supporting Noor Jahan no because his son-in-law is supposed to be king right and Shah Jahan is supposed to be king so she really did not think it through Mm-mm. um because once Jahangir dies the only support she has left is this youngest brother yeah. who's now fallen ill yeah. and so she really has no support system left yeah and Shahriyar was never really considered Mm-mm. um so those like Khusro actually had active uh, um partners like you know people courtiers who were interested in making him king right whereas shahriyar did not i think even have that so if she thought she was powerful enough to build a coalition that would stand behind shahriyar then it had to have her father and it had to have a brother yes. her father passed away before this happened mm-hmm. and her brother was never going to support right uh, this i think maybe if jahangir had lived you know another 5 10 years she could have built support maybe but without him like once he died yeah she she was really out of luck because the yeah. two people who could have been her supporters her brother and her stepson basically yeah. were not having it so yeah um may i also just say that this is a little icky for 21st century that you know she gets her daughter married to her husband's son Mm, yes. <laughs> just say. Yeah, no, just they, say. They are technically step siblings. So. <laughs> yeah, like you know, it is a little uh, uh about that. But like uh but the thing with that is like I wanted to um Noor Jahan's what happens to Noor Jahan after Jahangir dies? You want to talk about that? She is um exiled where she lives. Um for like another 10 years or so 15 years mm-hmm. am i right here um she so around that, that yeah, yeah uh she um well there's a, it seems like lol at least claims that she is uh taking control of jahangir's tomb although other historians right. have claimed that it was solely shah jahan so there's a little bit of tension there yeah. on whether or not she had her hand in that um but yet she she still retains money and land and and has but she loses most of her power yeah yeah no she is basically sort of retired and she lives in lahore she doesn't live at the harem anymore right which is really weird because you know all the uh, uh, em- emperor's wives usually live there even after the death of the emperor so mm-hmm. that's a little weird uh, but like everything gets erased of her except this court in lal at the very end where in shah jahan's Shah Jahan Nama the biography of Shah Jahan um when uh, Noor Jahan passes away on November 18th of 1645 they write uh, something about her mm-hmm. and i think this is singularly important uh, in, in in that Shah Jahan has allowed this to be in Shah Jahan Nama so you know it's yeah. actually um certified mm-hmm. really by Shah Jahan right? right and it says i'm just going to quote this thing mm-hmm. uh quote in the city of lahore the queen dowager nur jahan begum whom it is needless to praise as she had already reached the pinnacle of fame departed to paradise in the 72nd year of her age the renowned begum was the chaste daughter of itmad aldola and the sister of the late yamin aldola um that's asaf khan uh from the 6th year of the late emperor's reign when she was united to him in the bond of matrimony she gradually acquired such unbounded influence over his majesty's mind that she seized the reins of government and abrogated to herself the supreme civil and financial administration of the realm ruling with absolute authority till the conclusion of his reign so shah jahan shah jahan nama says she had absolute authority mm-hmm. during emperor jahangir's reign yeah and so that i think is just a clear sort of division of administration they actually say she does civil and financial not military right in in that quote mm-hmm. and so it seems like it, everything we know about nur jahan as an empress and being an administrator is true mm-hmm. um everything that was added to make her authority not real mm-hmm. is something that came later yes yeah it's a good point um and a good 
I think, segue into sort of her myth building. Uh-huh. Uh, because so, so she has all this extra power that most of these wives don't get. Um, and we've talked a little bit about how that is creating myths based on either contemporary or later European mm-hmm. opinions on what a wife should look like and yeah. what a, a queen should look like. Um, and in part, some of Shah Jahan's anger after her ambitious attempt to <laughs> take him out of the running for king. Um, even though, yeah, it, it is very strange then that that is how he re- tells about her life yeah. at the end of his book, uh, his biography. Um, and then I think we also are getting a lot of Orientalist fantasies within her, like being pushed into her narrative, which is happening all the time with women in South Asia when uh, Western narratives are coming in, when the British imperialists are coming in and retelling these stories. Um, And then, of course, there are film interpretations of which there have been many. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Which just add to this sort of pseudo-history. It feels like history, but it it's not. It's yeah. adding all these things, and it's imagining all these things. Yeah. And that was sort of what we got with these books, too, was... Yeah. Was imagine, if you will. <laughs> think what could have happened. Yeah. And I can see, easily see, because I work on decorative arts, like, you know, objects that have no real written history. Like, you know, I sometimes feel like I do the same thing where like, you know, I'm like, imagine or experience, or this is mind. The thing is the, the important thing there is though, if you are, uh, if it's, if it has to be historical, Mm -hmm. uh, then you have to say, this is my interpretation of it. Right. There shouldn't be sort of, any which way that Mm -hmm. people sort of think of it as history. Right. But what's happened with the movies are that while at the beginning they'll say, oh, this is based on a real life story. That's how it starts, right? In most of these movies. That makes you think that it's real. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Because it's saying based on a real life story. Right. They should say, no, this is a fictional story based on a real life person. Yes, they take these names that people recognize. Akbar, Babur, Jahangir, Nur Jahan, and they they take the names and they leave everything else behind. They say, "Here's Akbar. Here's, here's a love a- story with Jodha. Like, you know, <laughs> here's a beautiful love story yeah. that didn't actually happen." And Jodha wore Tanishk jewelry. That's my favorite <laughs> part. <laughs> but like the story about Nur Jahan, like you know, um, we were talking earlier about Mughalayazam. Yes. Like you know, Anarkali was not even a fictional. I mean, it, it, she's she's really fiction. There's no yes. historical figure, right? Um, really. And by the way, if you'd like us to sort of, you know, really bitch about uh, <laughs> pseudo history being portrayed as history in in South Asian cinema in Bollywood, mm-hmm. uh, please drop us a line so that you know we can actually have another podcast on it yes. because there's a lot to talk about. Yes, especially with Padmavat and the whole Bansali. Um, this uh, movie industry, this the the director Sanjay Leela Bhansali had Padmavat, and before that um, he made um, one on um, the Maratha uh, warrior mm-hmm. uh, minister slash almost king warrior. Okay, um, and there are a bunch of movies that's coming out with, with this historical underpinning. Right, this one on this ruler Martanda Varma, whom I work on for, from Kerala, that's coming out. There's, I think, another one that's coming out on Dara Shuko mm-hmm. that's happening next year. Um, the, the, and Aurangzeb, I think they're doing Aurangzeb and Dara Shuko. I don't know, like. I heard about it on Coffee with Karan or some of one of these Indian shows. <laughs> I heard it somewhere, but it's coming. Mm-hmm. And so, um, remember Ashoka by Shah Rukh Khan? Have you seen that one? It's a little, I'm not sure if yeah, I have. Yeah, Shah Rukh Khan is as the Emperor Ashoka. Yes, it's got nothing to do with Ashoka. Right. Like, like it's it's ridiculous how fictional that is. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that kind of narrative clouds especially when we don't know enough about our historical women characters yes. like the women figures in history mm-hmm. when we have very little knowledge of them 
it's hard to parse fact from fiction. Yes. And so the movies make it worse. Mm -hmm. Especially if, you know, when those movies come over to the West, when you don't have any background at all, when you're coming to a completely unaware audience and it's just, I will say, my partner watched one of the movies (laughs) and was just... Like, had no idea. It was like, is this real? He watched Mughal Yazam. Yeah. And was like, oh, this could be real. It seems real. Is this real? Yeah. You had to be like, no. Yeah. This is a, this is a fantasy of what yeah. could have happened. Yeah. It, it, it's, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. We should, we should have an entirely different podcast I to discuss so. that. Yes. Uh, but for now, like, you know, what do we have left of Noor Jahan that we haven't really talked about? We didn't talk about her architectural patronage. Yes, so she has, she did, as we talked about a little bit, the tomb of Itmud al-Dula, mm. um, as well as her Nirmahal caravanserai. Yes. Um, one of Which she made uh, on the Grand Trunk Road. Uh, yes. On the way to Allahabad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then she, um, the Ram Bagh also yes. is another one. Uh, I think Jahangir is very... Uh, excited about her garden planning. Yes. That is something she's into garden so much. Yes, yes. and she's very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she plant planned a garden that would later be in parallel with the Taj Mahal. Yes, also on the other side. Yes, of the river. So they they sort of work in tandem. I think it's interesting that Shah Jahan. I I do think he was influenced by the tomb of Itmud. Aldula. Yeah. And so even if he disagreed with Nur Jahan, yeah. he still is is being influenced by some of yeah. those architectural yeah. points that she's looking to. Yeah, she uh, so before like that Chad Bhag, the the four tr- four partitioned uh, garden that resembles paradise, which is what Taj Mahal's plan is based on. Mm-hmm. Um it's first uh, seen in Itmadud Dalas tomb yes. uh, next door and oh, practically next door mm-hmm. and so you know i'm and even the noor afshan i think afshan garden that that's in agra that noor, noor jahan makes designs yes. that is also in that paradise garden format of the islamic uh, she's very good with the p- paradisial yeah perfect garden yeah. Sk- landscape and and so in in many ways, like the landscape that we today associate with the Mughal world, um, that sort of symmetry, the ch- water channels, the uh, the kind of verdant green, mm-hmm. um, you know, paradisial sort of idea of the Mughals, mm-hmm. it comes from in many ways Nur Jahan as well. Yes, and, and if you think about it, her family from Persia, they were nobles in Persia as well. Like yes. they were extremely well-read and literate and they were all poets her father was a poet uh she seems to have composed poetry herself so uh they seem to have been extremely sort of cultural culturally rich family and quite liberal in itself that they brought up Noor Jahan to be like a very strong educated educated woman in a time when women were not really educated at all yes so um so she was in fact probably had some amount of knowledge of how Islamic gardens worked and what the right. paradise looked like and mm-hmm. what those ideas were already there. Yeah, she's reading the poetry about right. this. And also, uh, speaking on that, her father's tomb does invoke the Persian um, arabesque motifs also. Mm-hmm. So something that's coming with her from Iran yeah. And she's bringing into play in the tomb of her parents. Yeah. Um, I would also, I just remembered, fun fact about the Nirmahal caravanserai is it features sculptural female figures. Oh, really? Which is Did very not know unique. That. Um, uh, I would make the claim possibly, uh, influenced by, um, Hindi architecture, which has more oh, figural like, representation. Like, oh. Although they are much different than the women on Hindi temples, Hindu mm-hmm. temples, yeah. which of course are a little bit more. The women on the Nirmahal Sarai are more fully clothed and covered, and a little oh. bit more Islamic. Is there invoking. any of it left? Is the caravan Sarai around? Yes, I. You can see pictures. I've. There are pictures of these yeah. figures okay. on the on oh, the sides. Okay. That still That's exists. Interesting. I need to go check this out and look, yeah. look them up. 
So it, and it is surprising because usually there aren't. You don't see those figures. You don't yeah. see figural representations yeah. in, a, in a woman on a building. Also, it's which very which is uh, which could be only possible because it was a woman who paid you know who patronized the caravanserai and this was not any caravanserai this was this this was on the grand trunk road mm-hmm. where like thousands of people stayed and you know um did bartered and you know did business mm-hmm. and so it was like a really like a very um, you know sort of busy area where a lot of people actually came and saw and understood what these spaces were like so this was a powerful sort of thing for her to build so she she built caravanserais, then she built mosques. Mm-hmm. Two of the congregational sort of spaces, one spiritual and one mercantile. Yes. With her name on it, mm-hmm. which is, um, which, which is, uh, which shows some acumen, right? A yes. political acumen. Yeah. And I think shows maybe perhaps that she knows the area that she's living in. Like she's seeing these mm-hmm. architectural figures and yeah. she's understanding. Oh yeah, what's what's happening yeah. in when in India as a stylistic yeah buildings? I wonder if that's because in Bengal, like you know, I think Lal kind of mentions it in her book that in Bengal there were probably much less strict sort of adherence to the rule of women not going out in public, and mm-hmm. because you know it was such a frontier province, right? And, and she's so, by herself most of the time, and she yeah, she was by herself. She was surrounded by like you know just her servants, and so she probably had a chance to go out. Um, Lal also says that's probably where she learned how to shoot mm-hmm. because she had to arm herself to keep yeah. herself and She's her family herself. safe. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it seems very likely that, you know, Bengal as much as Agra sort of shaped this woman mm-hmm. into who she becomes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I. She's just a very... Yeah. I can't wait for you person. to... Uh, do your dissertation yeah. research and come up with like you know more information like you know real information about Noor Jahan and all right. the other Muslim women and what they did with the architecture and I think that would be so interesting for everyone because you know that's the work that that no one knows anything about right. so it's like you know really exciting uh, yeah I'm really excited to dig into sort of the the differences when a woman patronizes a building are mm-hmm. there differences where are they coming yeah. from how much influence are they invoking onto these mm-hmm. spaces so that's really where where my dissertation is going headed right now and it's very 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 early stages yeah but like that's that that's going to be so um crucial to the way we understand mughal architecture as well because a lot of these buildings we don't necessarily see them as as you said as women patronized buildings you see them as part of the emperor's larger you know sort of rebuilding building building construction enterprise yes and so this is going to be really interesting to see where this goes right yeah i think so too (laughs) i think that's all we have about no jahan for today Mm -hmm. um we really loved talking about her um i'd like to think of her as a little bit of a wonder woman of the east 17th century wonder woman of the east hmm yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah we, we, we can call it that. <laughs> but like, I, I, um, I do think that, you know, the one place that we really need to be careful when we think about Noor Jahan or any of these historical women is that we, um, don't have to think about them as we see them in movies. Yes. There's information out there <laughs> about these women, a little as they are, mm-hmm. but you know, you can find these information and, you know, Suit, you know, sort of thread them together and learn more about them without going for the movies. Yes. And I think looking at the architectural remains is one of those ways that we can learn a lot about them yeah. without so much conjecture. Yes, that is true. Because it's it's a solid it is there. piece of information. Yeah, it's, that, it's, it's like there tangible. for you to see. Yes, yes. It's tangible. You can touch it. Yes. <laughs> as Noor Jahan once would have. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't gone to Agra or if you're going to Agra again, instead of going to the Taj Mahal, maybe make a trip to Itmaduddala's tomb. Mm-hmm. If you're in Lahore, head to Noor Jahan's tomb as well as Jahangir's tomb, both of which she patronized. And let's sort of think about Noor Jahan as a builder... And an empress, as she rightfully was during her time. Yes. Right? Yeah. And celebrate her a little bit. 
Yes, right? definitely. <laughs> All right. So this is a signing off from Masala History. Again, if you like this podcast, give us a thumbs up. Um, we are at www.masalahistory.com. And we are on iTunes as Masala History. So you can find us both places. Also drop us a word if you have any special topics that you would like us to talk about. Because we'll talk about everything around here. So in the next coming weeks, we have more pods lined up. This one on Manasolasa, a 12th century treatise written by a king about how to be kingly. So we're going to talk about that, or I am going to actually talk about that. Um, and then uh, we also have a couple of uh, interesting pods on how to think about Indian art history and how to uh, talk about museums in South Asia. So we have two more exciting pods coming your way. And then we might also have one more on transgender culture in South Asia. Interesting. Yeah. I'll be listening. Okay. <laughs> so thank you, Maggie, and we'll see you again. We will thank do you. another pod really soon. Hopefully, yes. Um, this is bye from us for now. <laughs>